You're listening to Rock the Boat, a show about Asian Americans who challenge the status quo. Our past guests have included Andrew Yang, Michelle Fawn, Patrick Lee, and more. Our mission is to champion diversity in radio and elevate the voices of Asian Americans through storytelling. I'm your host, Lucia Liu. Hi, listeners. You're in for a treat because on this episode of Rock the Boat, we feature Indra Nui. She is the former CEO of PepsiCo. Indra has consistently ranked among the world's 100 most powerful women. She took over as CEO of PepsiCo after working there for about 12 years, becoming the fifth CEO in PepsiCo's history. Indra's tenure there lasted 25 years, and during that, she faced unique challenges as a woman and as an immigrant from India. During her tenure at PepsiCo, she led the transformation of their product portfolio. She helped steer PepsiCo's products from fun-for-you foods like sodium-rich Lay's potato chips and sugar-laden soft drinks to better-for-you foods like baked Lay's and sugar-free drinks. She even helped acquire good-for-you brands that included oatmeal and orange juice. Despite receiving a lot of criticism from skeptics during her tenure, Indra stuck to her playbook of performance with purpose. You get to hear her talk about it during this talk. I first heard Indra speak in person at Asian American Business Roundtable, hosted by AABDC. If you recall, they're the same organization that we partnered with for a season four launch. Mahmood Khan who is PepsiCo's former chief innovation officer and Indra's direct report for over 12 years, conducts this interview. So good morning. I have the daunting task of, in some ways, uh, asking questions of Indra. But the reason I accepted this is because for 12 years reporting to Indra, I got to answer all the questions. So when John said, hey, there's an opportunity for you to ask Indra questions and put her on the spot, ah, brilliant, I'll do that one. So that's can, the reason I'm But I can I'm turn here. the tables. Yeah. <laughs> so if, let me kick this off. And I, this is a common question I get, Indra. People ask, so, you know, how's things going? How's Indra, et cetera, et cetera. And they say, what's she doing? And I almost want to say, well, what is she not doing? That's a frequent question. How has retirement been for you? Wonderful. No, I mean it sort of in a positive way, in the sense that when I was at PepsiCo for 25 years and 12 as CEO, you were a prisoner of the quarterly earnings because you had to deliver those quarterly earnings and everything else you did was you know, around the quarterly earnings. So we were driven by the calendar of the quarterly earnings. Now that I'm retired... I can put whatever pressure I want on myself, but I'm not a prisoner of the quarterly earnings. So I pick and choose what I want to do. Uh, the unfortunate thing is I'm overcommitted because I just didn't know how to say no. Uh, so I've gotten involved in too many things, and my resolution for 2020 is to learn to say no, not to take on anything new. But I'm doing some of the most fascinating things that uh, I never thought I'd get a chance to do. One, I teach up at the U.S. Military Academy in West Point. And it's just one of the most uh, amazing experiences for anybody to have. I spend 16 days of the year there, two days at a time, every few weeks. And I teach the faculty and, you know, women cadets, senior cadets. I mean, I just have a good time at the military academy. 
I sit on boards of Amazon, Schlumberger, the International Cricket Committee, Temasek. So those keep me kind of busy. Uh, I give a few speeches around the world. I said I do about eight or ten a year. I do that. And then I'm the co-chair of the Connecticut Economic Commission. I work for the governor. He and I went to school together, so he said, hey, you've got to help me. Since we both live in Connecticut, we've got to bring more energy back to Connecticut. We are working to build more business in Connecticut. And finally, I'm writing a book. This is perhaps of my 150%. This has got 100%. And the book is about integrating uh, work and family in the 21st century. So much has been written about individual aspects of what needs to be done. There's not been anything on systems thinking on what actually needs to come together to allow young people to integrate work and family. Because as a country, we need 2.1 kids per young family in order to have a replacement rate. Yet the system does not really support people having kids, leave alone 2.1 kids. So we want to provide the capability to allow them to have those 2.1 kids and not have to struggle their way through life. I'm talking about young people, not just women, women and men. And so it's interesting. The book has been funded. We've got a publisher. It's already been sold into 30 countries or more. Uh, we've got all the book parties lined up. We're still writing the book. <laughs> so <laughs> We've just started writing the book. There's a big team working on it. And... Uh, uh, it's going to be fun, and it's going to be supported by an institute that converges people to move everything to action. So this is not one of these, write a book and do a book tour and it's over. The book is incidental. It's just to spark the dialogue. The institute and what's going to happen in terms of moving into action is really where all of the magic is going to happen. So somebody gave me an idea to convene the women's groups on Facebook, and we've got Lots and lots of discussions going on around the country as primary research. So I'm very excited about this memo. Did somebody hear the word retirement? Was it my question? No, it's retirement from quarterly earnings. That's what I said. I now know I'm not going to retire. Because if this is what after retirement is. I tell you, the toughest part about retirement is I miss all my PepsiCo people. So good to see you guys. Great to have you. Yes. If you look back during your tenure and your time at PepsiCo, that 24-year period was a time of tremendous change in the industry, in the business environment, business culture, not just demographics, but our license to operate. And not only did you have to adapt and evolve, but a much greater task of taking a very large organization and an entire industry to think differently. Share your thoughts about how you took that challenge on. It's interesting. Uh, many people ask me this question, how did you even come up with the program and how did you implement it? The funny part is when we talked about performance with purpose and the first part being, yeah, we're going to deliver performance, but we have to transform the portfolio because consumer tastes were shifting. We had to reduce the salt, sugar, and fat and dial up the good-for-you, nutritious stuff. Many people thought, you know, that was a waste of time because PepsiCo was about fun-for-you products. You should keep doing that. But herein lies the challenge. The reason that it was a challenge but not as big a challenge as I thought it would be is because many of our people had already changed their eating and drinking habits. So on the one hand, they were worried about 
what it meant for the financial results if we had to invest in change. On the other hand, deep down inside, they were getting a lot of grief from their friends. They themselves had changed their eating and drinking habits. And more importantly, they had changed the pattern of eating and drinking they were allowing for their kids. I still remember going to Egypt on a market tour, my first, I think, two or three years at PepsiCo. And at dinner that night, I'd invited all the spouses of the executives. And in Egypt at that time, we didn't have any females. So all the men had brought their wives along. And I said at dinner after dinner, only questions from wives are allowed. None of the men are allowed to ask any questions. So silence, absolute silence. I said, you know, we'll have silence for 15 minutes. I don't care. But until the women ask the questions, I'm not leaving this place. So one woman put her hand up and she said, uh, my husband is probably not going to talk to me after I ask you this question, but let me ask you this anyway. This is Egypt. I want you to know. She said, We've, you know, my husband's worked in PepsiCo for many years. Pepsi, Lay's, all the products come into the house. We love it. I now have a two-year-old kid. I don't allow those products in the house. What do you have to say about it? Think about this. When the moral core of your life and the moral core of your livelihood don't come together, there's a problem. And that's what was happening. Why performance with purpose was something people felt deep down inside but struggled to articulate is because they realized the articulation required investment and required change. But feeling it deep down inside meant that change had to happen. And so I think, Memu, the reason we were both able to make the change, uh, we didn't have the you know, usual critics, but the reason we were able to make the change is everybody felt the need for change deep down inside. So, you know, it caught on, and I hope it continues that way. But at the time, we were ahead of the pack. But if you really want to have a good company, you have to be ahead of the pack. There's no point doing it after the horse has left the barn. So that's the reason I think we were able to do what we needed to do. And I think the best um, endorsement of that is so many followed, right? So much of the Now it's considered, you know, last night I was uh, at an event in Greenwich for a book party, and there was an investor uh, analyst from, may have been J.P. Morgan or Morgan Stanley, I don't know, Kathleen Stack. She was one of the very tough uh, investors. And uh, there was a uh, fund manager, I think his name was Tom Luddy, in that group. Any of you know him? I still remember in 2010, sitting in the room upstairs, and I was reminding Kathleen Stagg about it. For an hour, he yelled at me about, who the hell are you to transform the portfolio? Why should you focus on environmental issues? Get back to making sugary soft drinks and doing things the way you used to do it. I mean, he just yelled at me. And I just stood, sat there taking it, and I said, at the end of it, not changing the strategy. Not changing the strategy. This is where the company is headed. Our board is behind us. This is where we're headed. At the end of the hour, he looked at me and said, keep doing what you're doing, and he left. <laughs> he was just testing me to see, do you have resolve? Are you going to do it? And Kathleen and I were reflecting on that yesterday. So those were tough days, uh, really tough times. So I'm going to tell a couple of Indra's stories during this discussion. Indra's a phenomenal salesperson. And she's a great scientist. I'll come to the science in a minute. So I'm meeting with Indra several times in the process of being evaluated in interviews to whether I'm going to join the company or not. 
and whether Indra wants to hire me or not. And after lot, lots of different conversations, I'm sitting on the fence going, do I really want to do this? Am I, what's an endocrinologist going to do? And she goes, and you know, when you get to be a, a boomer later in your career, you don't get stumped too often. But with Indra, you get stumped frequently. And so she goes, uh, Mahmood, of all the drugs you've developed in your career, how many have you taken? <laughs> Remember that? And I looked at her, I go, whoa. And she goes, well, you can come here and you can take everything you develop. Okay, that was the signing point. All right, I'm on the team. The best hire I made in PepsiCo was hiring Mehmood Khan to head no, up Sharanti. We would not be the company we are today without Mehmood as head of R&D. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Well, <clears throat> thank you for saying that, Indra, but working for Indra all these years, you sort of left the room being educated. Um, and what I found interesting in our earlier uh, presentation uh, was the short attention span that we're hearing about in millennials and Gen Zs. Early on in my career with, Pep uh, with PepsiCo and reporting to Indra, I learned that Indra reads everything. So I used to give summaries, then I gave more detailed documents. And since a lot of it was also based on science, then I started giving more science including formulae of chemical structures. I mean, this thing continued to progress. Inter read it all. So my question to you is, how do you balance that need of in-depth study and analysis that I've seen you do for well over a decade directly with the environment we live in today where I just heard that there's a 10-second attention span? I don't know. I just I read everything because I had deep respect for everybody who worked for me. And so I felt that if you did the work and gave me the deck, it's not because it was a bureaucratic process. It's because you wanted me to read it. So I read every page because you put effort into developing every page. So that was my first rule. The second is, as I would read the deck, if there was a particular slide I didn't understand, I needed the backup. So I'd go find the backup. And if I didn't understand the backup, I found the backup to the backup. So I did this process of discovery because, you know, you keep asking the question why or how several times until you truly understand what needs to be done. Because if you really want to effect change, it's no longer brief the top and train the bottom. It's train the top and brief the bottom. The pyramid's actually reversed because... When it's a normal change management and life's just going on, the top doesn't have to know that much. But if it's a transformation, the top has to drive it. And so from my perspective, if I didn't really know what needed to get done, how were we going to do it? I mean, the example is who's here from Accenture who, who was at Accenture when we first started the ERP transformation? I remember way back in 2001 when we were putting a new ERP system, over a billion dollars in CapEx. And when I got the CapEx form to sign, I was the CFO and president at that time. I was signatory number 21. Steve Reinman, the CEO, was going to be 22. I, I read the CapEx. I didn't understand a word of it. So I went to the signatory 20, and I said, hey, what does this CapEx mean? And this person said, I don't know, but the tax calculations are right. Okay. 
2019. I don't know, but the financial model is right. So I kept going down this chain until I got to something like six or seven, you know, very junior level person who understood the CapEx. So let me make sure I understand. I'm going to send a CapEx to my CEO who will sign, if I've signed it, for a billion and a half dollars. And nobody from levels five through, or signatory number five to 20 really understood it. Understood pieces of it, but nobody understood it from a systems perspective. So I said, I've got to understand it because if I'm going to sign off on anything, anything, a permission slip for my children to a CapEx, if I'm going to sign off on something, I'm going to know every word of what I signed off. So I went to school. For six or eight weeks, I studied ERP systems and IT like I was crazy. My family thought I was crazy. But you know what? It's out of deep care, respect, and taking your job seriously. That's all it is. You know, I've raised this question. There are a lot of young people here listening. It's often there's a myth that, you know, when you get to the C-suite, you get to see, read the executive summary. And I think you've just heard a perfect articulation of it's quite the opposite. And it's a key to your success and the decisions that you ultimately made. Success, right? yeah. If you look back at uh, your own education, your training, your cultural heritage, if you were to pick one or two things that now you can reflect on and say, these were the driving and motivating factors that allowed you to achieve what you did. Who would you look back at? It was interesting in writing this book. Uh, you know, it started off as we want a memoir. I said, I'm not going to write a memoir because my family said they don't want to be part of it. If they don't want to be part of it, there's no memoir. So, so writing this book about integrating work and family, there's stories that, come, that get woven in because without that, nobody's going to buy the book. And so you reflect back on how you managed to balance everything and how did you get to where you are. And it's taken me all the way back to my childhood, how I was brought up, how I managed life through the many years and where I am today. And I think if you ask me about the one thing that was common across Mehmood, believe it or not, it's the Asian values and the Asian heritage. And more and more I'm coming to terms with the fact that that has played a much bigger role in my life than anything else in my life. As a kid, my grandfather would say, Satan has worked for idle hands, so you will not have sit idle any time. Okay, you know, that allowed me to read everything and never sit idle. If you're going to do something, do it well. Okay, so I always believed that if I gave a deck to my boss, my boss didn't have to rework it. Okay, in fact, I got, to, got it to a point where my bosses who were CEOs would say, I don't want to review your work because if you've reviewed it, it's more than perfect. And I'd beg them to review it because it was going to the board, they would not even look at it. That's a good place to be. The other thing is the importance of family. I couldn't have had kids and had a job if I hadn't had my family to support me. The Asian values that we have, the intergenerational support exists, we can't walk away from that. We have to nurture it, we have to advance it. And in my family, the men and women were treated equally. And I know in many Asian families, increasingly that's the case. If that had not happened, I wouldn't have been where I am today. And I married a wonderfully supportive spouse. 
And we're proud of our Asian heritage, and we are proud of our American citizenry. So it's a good balance between the two. So there isn't one thing, Mehmood, but it's a combination of Asian values combined with living in the United States that has given me the ability to do what I'm doing. You've shared with me in the past um, the um, home environment of scarcity that you grew up with. I've heard you speak about how it shaped your thinking, whether it's water environment. Talk a little bit about how that shaped your thinking. Well, you know, on so many aspects, growing up in the 50s and 60s without much made me a better person, I believe. Because when I grew up, there was no TV, there was no internet. We didn't have many radio stations to speak of. Growing up in India, we didn't own a car, we didn't own a telephone. My father had a scooter, a Vespa. The whole family would go on the Vespa. I have to tell you, I loved those times. Because now, you know, you can't talk to your kids at dinner without them texting you at dinner. I, mean, I find it absolutely offensive that at the same dinner table, they're texting you a message rather than talking to you across the dinner table. Or they're texting somebody else. We didn't have any of those things. We actually talked at dinner. We actually were given challenges at dinner. As I look at uh, our life, of course we didn't have water in Madras growing up. No water at all. And it was always in a drought situation. And you fast forward to PepsiCo and you go, oh my God, we use three liters of water to make a liter of Pepsi in a plant outside of Madras where there's still water shortages. Absolutely unconscionable. And so we started the water reduction program. Uh, and then in every other water distressed area around the world, you realize that the same problems exist. So it was always amusing to me at the PepsiCo shareholders meetings when the water activists would show up and say, PepsiCo needs to reduce water usage. I'd look at them and say, you're talking to me? I grew up in a drought area. Have you ever visited a drought area? Oh, no, no, they're from Boston. <laughs> okay? I have nothing against Boston. I love Boston. But Boston is not your example of a drought-ridden area. I feel the drought in every pore of my body because Madras still doesn't have water, and I was there over the holidays still doesn't have water. So when you grow up in that environment, it shapes your thinking. Again, the moral code of your life and the moral code of your livelihood. So when my kids have a half an hour shower, I'm banging the door saying, come out of the shower, don't waste water. And they look at me and go, mom, come on, this is not India. But yet when they go to India, you give them a, one bucket of water, they'll find a way to scrunch themselves and take a shower or a bath. Okay? And so it's amazing how those formative experiences did wonders for you as you grew up. We never had one-way plastics. We never had plastic bags. We took our gunny bag or a little uh, uh, cloth bag to the grocery store and bought our groceries wrapped in newspaper combs and we brought it home and emptied everything into you know, glass jars or tins. Umrah and the shaking ahead. Some people might say, oh my God, what a challenge. I look at this and go, environmentally so goddamn responsible. We didn't have much trash except some biological waste, okay? We don't do any of that today. So I look back and say, the time has come for us to go back and pick the best of those days and redesign our models. And if we don't do that, I don't know if there's enough landfills in the world. I don't know if there's enough water in the world. And I don't know if there's enough people, countries that are going to accept all our trash. 
because most countries don't want the trash. So my kids one day, I was talking to them and said, what would you like for Christmas or birthday? And they said, hmm, you can't do this, but we'll ask you anyway. They said, for one week, shut off the global internet. Shut off the global internet for one week. And mom, you're so lucky you grew up at a time when there was no internet and no TV and 300 channels coming down the iPad. Can you imagine this? My kids are uh, millennials. They're saying shut off the internet. So I think everything that I experienced growing up, not all of it, parts of it, are coming back you know, in vogue in profound ways. So it, it shaped me profoundly. So there's trendy suburbs where some of this is coming back. Now you have to go to the grocery store with your own bag. Yeah, which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that Kamesh brought up was about nurturing leaders mm-hmm. and the tremendous success you've had over your tenure in uh, cultivating other leaders who've gone on to great positions themselves. What's the magic sauce? What makes one different as a CEO versus others who haven't done that? We heard example of two great coaches with a very great different legacy from a people point of view. Yeah. So remember, you were one of my prized executives who's become CEO of a company. And I think, yeah, we've had about 10 CEOs just in the last six years from PepsiCo who've gone on to become, 10 people who've gone on to become CEOs and then CHROs, CMOs, CFOs. I think the key thing is when we appointed leaders in PepsiCo, I didn't care what ethnicity or background or country or... I didn't care anything. All that we wanted was the absolute best and brightest. That's all we recruited for, the best and brightest. But the best and brightest is not just raw talent. It's also how are you going to take this raw talent and shape them to be even better than they would have been on their own trajectory. So I always said to myself that my success was going to be determined by the people I left behind, not by the job I did. The legacy of my CEO successor, the kind of leadership I developed, was the way you make corporate America a better place or the corporate world a better place. So I would spend hours and hours and hours reading what you sent me, writing notes on every page, and I wasn't doing that I to can, show. I can verify that. And I wasn't doing that to show that I read it or anything of the sort. I felt that that deck would have been better. Okay? Or you could have said in 10 slides what you took 50 slides to say. Or um, as I would say to the team, I'd get a deck, I'd read it and send a note back saying a trained monkey could have written a better deck. Okay? And I didn't mean it in a negative way. She was referring to no, me. I, I did not mean it in a negative way. All that I was saying was, this is not a deck that's worthy of giving to a CEO. But then I wouldn't leave it there. I'd say, come on and in, come into my office. Let me teach you how you can write a better deck. To me, the ironic thing was, uh, I think way back when I was president, I flew to Moscow on a Friday night. I worked with the Russia team uh, Saturday and Sunday to write a capex for an acquisition they wanted to make. I flew back to uh, the U.S. Sunday night, and as I was leaving, I told the team, do you realize how stupid this whole scenario is? I gave up my weekend, flew to Moscow, worked with you all weekend. We didn't even sleep. I flew back. And on Wednesday, you're coming to the U.S. to present the CapEx to me to approve it. They looked at me and said, yeah, but 
you came to us as the coach and mentor. You didn't come to us as the president of the company. So we wanted to look good in front of the president and CFO. <laughs> you see that? And so there was always this role about, I might be the CEO, but let me take off that CEO hat for a second because I need to coach you and train you to do something better than what you've done right now. Because I think you have the potential to learn. If I thought somebody didn't have the potential to learn Memmuth, they're gone. I, I, do, I do something with Memmuth. I don't know if you remember this. You probably want to forget it as a nightmarish experience. But I'd be sitting there saying, these are five questions that I'd like answers to. Scientific questions I'd like answers to. Five or seven or ten. And I'd call Memmuth and say, Memmuth, I've got these X number of questions. Can you put some scientists to work on it? Now, I've tried this with other disciplines that give me shitty answers. Memo that give really hard questions. Three months later, he'll come to me and said, the team is waiting for you. I've put teams to work against each in their free time. And they've really got answers to each. You remember these sessions? And every session was more productive than anything I've ever been to. But then, look at it this way. For Mahmood, it was a window into how a CEO thinks. And for those teams, it was a great way to engage on stuff that was future forward or future back, if you want to think of it that way. So both of us benefited and the company benefited. So the time that was spent on development was critically important to me. And I loved seeing all of you develop and become way better than I would have ever become. Um. One of the things that I look back and um, you always saw was Indra and I, I don't think ever in 12 years disagreed on the principle of what should be done. We often disagreed on the how and had lots of those conversations. Lots of arguments. I'll use it as debates. Okay, debate, debate. <laughs> oh, both are good, uh, yeah. I usually walked away being convinced of what I should have believed in the first place. But that's, and we could, in that, come to a better position. Mm. And it yet, actually says something. If you surround yourself with yes people, it's a disaster. If you surround yourself with boring, negative people, that's also a disaster. It's having people who are willing to speak up their mind and you having the courage to actually engage in a dialogue with them. So... But there's a personal side to Indra. Um, when I f first joined uh, the company, and some of you may have no idea of this, and I'd never seen this done, my father got a letter from Indra. My father was in England. That's where I grew up. How she got my dad's address... MI6. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to call Washington, D.C. and figure out where the connection is. Maybe it's the State Department at something. But my dad got a letter. And then I learned that this was the norm for Indra. And so there's this person. How did, how did you nurture, you know, this, the thought of how to engage this extended family? Because I can tell you, on the receiving end, that's probably one of the most touching gestures. Did you experience that from your bosses? Uh, sure, your. I mean, not really from my bosses, uh, but uh, as I've always said, when, my, when I became CEO, my father has pa had passed away many years ago, 
When I became CEO, people never congratulated me. They always congratulated my mother for doing such a good job with the daughter. Always. And my mother would sit there and say, yeah, it's not me, it's my prayers. I pray for four hours a day. God did it. So this was a standard conversation. And then, you know, when your kids uh, do a good job and if somebody in their company or the college or somebody says, you know, so-and-so did a good job, you think your kid won the Nobel Prize. You're sort of floating on cloud nine and you and your spouse actually are positive about the kid because you heard something positive. Yet, when it came to all of you, all of the senior executives in PepsiCo who gave so much to the company, who were the reason I was successful and the company was successful, never got a thank you note from me. Never. And so I thought that was really a major miss. So I got all your addresses and wrote to the parents. And the letter was about five paragraphs. A couple were standard form. Why I was writing this letter, I didn't want them to panic that they were getting a letter from... <laughs> you know, it's worrisome, right? The envelope comes in. Chairman and CEO, you wonder what happened to your kid. <laughs> then two or three paragraphs were really personal about the person. Then there was a closing paragraph. So interesting reactions. Uh, Zane Abdullah, remember Zane? Zane uh, was at PepsiCo. And uh, Zane's mother, who was in England, uh, was visiting Dubai or something like that. And the letter had gone to her home in England. I always copied the executive because I didn't want the parent not wanting to open the letter thinking it was bad news. So Zane gets a letter. He's now waiting to see his mother's reaction. His mother calls him and says, Zane, the next door neighbor just called and said, there's a letter from Indra. What do I do? I'm panicking. He says, don't worry, mom. Just open the letter. You'll be fine. She says, are you sure, Zane? Because I'm going to have her open it. Are you sure I'm not going to be embarrassed? And he said, I assure you, mom, you're not going to be embarrassed. So the next door neighbor opened the envelope and read the letter. The best thing that happened in the village. Because by the time Zane's mother came back, there was a ticker tape parade for the mother. You know, everybody knew in the village knew that Zane was somebody very important, was doing great things, and the chairman thought so. So when I met his mother, she was like, thank you for the letter. I'm really somebody now, important in the village. <laughs> Remember Pavan, Pavan Bhatia? He was our CHRO in Asia Pacific. He tells me the story. I met him a few weeks ago. He said that when his father got the letter, they live in an apartment building in New Delhi. His father sat on the ground floor of the apartment building in a chair with 100 copies of the letter. <laughs> Anybody who walked in, he said, you might want to read this letter. <laughs> you might want to read this letter. But think about it. Just... You know, we laugh about it in jest. It's not the fact that he gave out the letter. The fact that for the first time, somebody gave an awesome report card on his son or daughter, which they'd never had since that person turned, what, 15, 16? They've never had one. In my case, it was the entire lifetime. <laughs> it was the best one. Yeah, so... Um, I have one more question. Given all the changes and you took on transformational roles, as we said right at the start of this conversation, uh, internal alignment, you did very well. It, on one-on-one -on -one basis, you're obviously very convincing, and yet you and I read the public comments and opinions 
on where you were taking PepsiCo. And, you know, analysts and reporters being at times Monday morning quarterbacks, when everything had gone very well, looked back, and this was the best thing ever done. But during the process, there was also sometimes uh, less than flattering comments about work. I, one thing that stands out for me is the Business Week had a cover page article with a picture of Indra and myself, and it says, Pepsi brings in the health police. It was not a very nice article. How did you handle this public commentary and yet stuck with it? Because that's the only playbook I had. Because, you know, from my perspective, I was more interested in the future of the company and doing the right thing as opposed to doing what was expedient during my tenure as a CEO. So I wanted to run the company for the duration of the company, not my duration. So I told the board, this is the only playbook that's the right playbook, and this is the only way we should run the company. And the board said, we have your back. Go for it. So from my perspective, if you wanted me to change strategy and go back to the way we were doing things, you needed a new CEO, which I was okay with. goes back to the question you asked about growing up in scarcity. When you grow up with not much money, and when my husband and I got married, if we saved 10 bucks at the end of the month, we thought we were rich. When you grow up with those values, if you lose your job, we know how to go back to those values. Who cares? And so from my perspective, this was the only way I was going to run the company. The board had my back. And all the criticism can come and go. I knew that at some point in the future, history would write that we did the right thing. Because I'd go back to the moral code of your life and the moral code of your livelihood. And to me, I mean, there's a lot of financial people in here Every instrument that you sell, ask yourself the question, would you put your own money behind that instrument? It's the same thing. If you don't consume certain products at the per capita levels that we want everybody to consume, okay, then you better start changing the portfolio because the consumer is you too. So that was the acid test, and I never deviated from that. You and I never deviated from that. We had many conversations on this. Look, it's been tremendous Thank you for accepting our invitation to come. Thank you for sharing. And most importantly, thank you for inspiring not only one, but several generations to come of not just Asian, but any ethnic group who aspires to actually push themselves beyond anything that they might have thought possible. That was Indra Nui, the former CEO of PepsiCo and a retiree with too many things on her plate. What I love about Indra is her sincerity, her down-to-earth demeanor, and her ability to just not take herself too seriously. Indra shares so many lessons in this interview. For example, she shares how important it is for her to stick with her values despite external pressures to keep things the same. She could have easily done what other CEOs have done, such as cut costs on research and development, continue offering the same products, and deliver high returns in the short term. Instead, she ran the company with long-term goals and sustainability in mind. Her integrity and her ability to stick with her convictions really moved me. The thing that she always said is that she ran PepsiCo as if the company were going to last forever. Another lesson that Indra imparted was how important it was to embrace her heritage. Her heritage 
shaped her convictions and her actions. What struck me was that she didn't try to conform with the social norms in America, but did something that really touched her direct reports, like sending letters to their parents, saying what a great job they've done. She leveraged her cultural heritage and background for important initiatives like reducing water usage, reducing packaging and products, and that really showed through her work. Finally, I think one important lesson from Indra's talk that wasn't quite spoken outright, but was more so implicit, is that Indra throughout her tenure at PepsiCo brought on a very diverse team. That team then left the company and took on C-suite roles at other major companies. This just goes to show how important it is to have someone who is diverse lead a company. They inherently help other minorities rise to the top. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rock the Boat. Big thank you to Asian American Business Development Center, AABDC, who partnered with us in bringing you Indra Nui's story. AABDC was established in New York City in 1994 to promote greater recognition of Asian American businesses' contributions to the general economy. AABDC encourages Asian American businesses to be more actively involved in issues and policies that directly affect them at the federal, state, and city levels. Over the years, AABDC has created a significant presence within the Asian American business community in the U.S. and has established a credible position as a middleman introducing business opportunities between China and New York. You can learn more about AABDC at aabdc.com. The link will be in the show notes. Please support the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating if you're listening on iTunes, and definitely tell your friends about it. This episode was written and edited by me, Usha Liu. Thanks to Rachel Chu for mixing and music. You can follow us on Instagram at rocktheboatnyc and subscribe to our mailing list for inside news. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all next time.